Hello, welcome to the Raw podcast. My name's James Copley. I'm with uh, Joe Nicholson and Phil Smith today. Here to talk about Sunderland's most recent loss to Birmingham City. But Phil, we'll start actually with the news that broke today uh, that Birmingham City have confirmed that manager Tony Mowbray requires medical treatment. He will temporarily be on the sidelines, stepping away from the club for a period of approximately six to eight weeks. Goes without saying, but we wish him and his family well. A, a really, really nice man. And yeah, a shame that he's had to step away from Birmingham for the, for the foreseeable. Yeah, really, really sad news. A real shock, I think, for everyone this morning. And, and as you say, like, you know, just sending Tony and his family our absolute best. You know, I don't think I've met a, a better person in football to be honest, in, in all the years I've been involved with it. So, yeah, just, just hoping that, you know, that he gets well soon. Um, obviously, it looks like he's still going to be able to do some of his work during the next six to eight weeks, even if he's not going to be in, sort of involved on in a day-to-day basis. And, you know, and he's handed over to Mark Venus, his long-time assistant, who, you know, is every bit as, as good a bloke as Tony is. So, yeah, wishing wishing them both the very, very best. And obviously, yeah, sending all our thoughts and love to, to Tony Mowbray and his family, because as I say, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't wish to meet a, a better person. Absolutely. Well, Sunderland lost to former head coach Tony Mowbray at the weekend after going a goal ahead through Jack Clark. Ended up losing 2-1 on the day away from home. Second loss on the road in a week following that against Huddersfield Town. We haven't done a pod, fill since the, the Plymouth game and it started to feel like things were, were turning a little bit for Michael Bailey. had that little moment with... Sunderland fans, they'd, ha- they'd had a good result, they'd, they'd had a good second half. And in the space of a week, we seem to be back to square one with everything. And everybody's very angsty, very upset. And Sunderland's performances have dipped again, is the sad reality. Yeah, well, to be honest, uh, I, I don't really quite see it that way. We said we spoke last week after the Plymouth game. And, and you know, I said that I wasn't getting carried away because the Plymouth game was another example of one where Sunderland had been very, very good for a spell. And very, very poor for a spell in the game. The difference in that one was that when they were on top, they really made it count by scoring three outstanding goals. The Huddersfield and the and the Birmingham games really have been have been a continuation of that, where there've been some encouraging signs at times and some very, very poor ones. You know, you could argue really that the Birmingham Plymouth games weren't too different actually, just that the halves were flipped. So Sunderland were actually pretty good in the first half here at Birmingham. All right, they didn't have loads and loads of chances, but. It was a sellout crowd. Birmingham were, were on a high after their win in midweek. And Sunderland really stifled them. The pressing was really good. They were on the front foot for the most part. Scored a good goal, albeit from a Birmingham mistake. Um, and then the second half, unfortunately, was just a continuation of what we've seen way too often, where the, the intensity just completely dropped. The, sta- the standard of you know performance just wasn't good enough. And I think what we also saw is, which unfortunately, again, has been a theme at times in recent weeks, as they were incredibly slow to respond, really, when the momentum changed. Birmingham obviously used the half-time break as a chance to sort of reflect and tweak a few things. Um, and the game changed in the second half, and Sunderland just didn't really respond until it was already, you know, they were already behind and it was too late. So, yeah, I, I take your point, but I think, really, we've just seen from Sunderland in the last week where they've been for the last sort of two, three months, really, which is where the away form's nowhere near good enough, and ultimately... Their consistency within games just just isn't good enough for where they want to be. That is, which is you know obviously the playoffs. Joe, what do you put this inconsistency during games down to? Generally, I think the easy thing to point out is is a lack of experience in the squad in, in terms of age. 
the players on the pitch probably have to take a little bit of responsibility and the coaching staff certainly do. How, how do you see it at the moment? Yeah, I think the experience will definitely kind of come into it and people will kind of point to that aspect. It just seemed to me on Saturday a case of Sunderland played well in the first half, pressed well, took the lead, but it was kind of a case of a team taking the lead and then dropping back to try and protect that lead, which naturally sometimes happened and, and they just couldn't kind of stem the flow of the game as, as Birmingham kind of took control and and speaking to kind of players afterwards and asking kind of what's Michael Beale changed since he's come in to Sunderland since he replaced Tony Mowbray. A lot of the players say kind of structurally out of possession, Beale is a lot more focused on making Sunderland harder to beat and maybe structurally they could be conceding less chances, but I think kind of maybe if it's individual mistakes or people switching off from set pieces or just not reacting quick enough. I mean, I just watched the Birmingham goals back before we came on and and kind of the first one in particular, there was, there was a couple of chances where Birmingham players were just quicker onto the ball than the Sunderland players inside the Sunderland's box, which shouldn't really happen when, when you're ahead and uh, trying to see out the game. So, yeah, maybe lack of experience could be a reason behind this inconsistency, but just kind of maybe um, players not reacting quick enough or set pieces. The one at Huddersfield where the Huddersfield player was quicker to the ball after Patterson palmed it away. It was just... It's very frustrating at the minute, and it'll be frustrating for Beale. It'll be frustrating for the fans that the Sunderland aren't turning what was a good 45 minutes into then a, a result because Birmingham took control in the second half. What did you make of team selection, Phil? Obviously, Burstow came in for Rusin. Michael Beale continues to chop and change that position. Personally, I think one of them could do with a prolonged run in the side that goes beyond two or three games. I know Burstow had that earlier on in the season under Mowbray, but he hasn't had it since Rusin's, I think, two or three game run and, and then gets dropped just as he's starting to look good. I just feel like it's going to be very hard for, for either of those players to develop any sort yeah. of continuity patterns of play. I, I do understand you have to tailor your team to the opposition and perhaps Michael Beale thought Burstow would provide more against Birmingham City. I don't know, but how, how do you see that facet at the moment? Yeah. I, I agree with you, your sort of point about one of them getting a run in a team. I have to say, I think it's probably harsh to say Rusin was was dropped for this one. I think it was more of a reflection of the fact that it was three games in seven days that Sunderland had played. And I think, obviously, Rusin had gone from a scenario where he hadn't played a huge amount of football at all to start in two games. And obviously, you see from Rusin the work he gets through when he's on the pitch. Mm-hmm. That's his biggest quality, really. So, I th- this wasn't one where I sort of looked at it and... And, and your heart sank a little bit because you thought, I, I do agree there's been too much inconsistency. And I certainly think, you know, I'm probably in the same place as a lot of Sunderland fans where, with it, where I think it's no real reflection on Burstow. I just think Rusin Sunderland's player, they've spent quite a bit of money on him. He's got a long-term contract. Let's give him a run to, to make that space his own. I can kind of understand for this one particular game why Burstow came in. And actually, I, I think you have to say as well, he's missed his big chance early on. Fantastic cross from Mundell, who looked really dangerous. So, you know, that's obviously the headline to take away from the game. But I thought Bristol's energy in the first half was really good. And I thought he put a lot of pressure. I don't know what Joe thing's been there as well. I thought he put a lot of pressure on the Birmingham defenders and actually in the goalkeeping causing a lot of problems. So I wouldn't be too critical of Bristol in the first half. In the second half, it was kind of a similar story all over the pitch, really, where players just didn't replicate the level that they'd managed in the first half. So I do agree with your point. Like I'd be really disappointed not to see Rusin in the starting lineup on Saturday because I do think it's time to just say, look, Let's give someone a proper run and make a real judgment on what they can do. In this particular one, I sort of understood it. I think, again, my biggest criticism would be how slow someone were to respond to the shift of momentum in the game in the second half. That, personally, I thought was a bigger issue than the actual selection. You know, the fact that suddenly if we 
if I sit here and say I thought someone was quite good in the first half, then I can really criticise the selection, can I? Um, but I do think they let the game get away with him in the second half. Now, I suspect, you know, it was a quite a cathartic win for Tony Mowbray, really, to turn, you know, after mm. what happened at the end of his time here, to turn the game on its head like that. And his changes were excellent. Bakuna came on the left wing, which I don't think is his position, but he found space. Someone really struggled to cope with him. He had a very, very, very good day, I would suggest. Joe, what were your thoughts on, on Sunderland's approach generally, tactically, I guess, under Michael Beale as well as a whole in that striker situation? Yeah, I think as Phil said, I think first half you can't really criticise them because they did play well. They were the better team and, and took the lead. Um, I don't know what you guys think, but perhaps maybe it showed in the second half again the lack of options off the bench. I mean, it took until the 70th minute for Sunderland to to make a change and Beale only made two changes to his starting eleven following the Huddersfield game and there weren't really too many other changes you felt he could make. The burst I wanted for Roosin um, seemed like one that would happen because Roosin had played two games prior to that in kind of a short space of time. And the other one, Mundell coming in for, um, who's he coming for? Bar, because Roberts was injured. Um, so I think it maybe again highlighted the lack of options on the bench. I think we've got in midfield, you've got Neil and Equa, which which seems like they kind of have to play every game. Could he put Chris Riggin potentially? But still yet to make his first championship start. And we've got to remember he's still only 16 and there doesn't really seem to have been many other changes that Beale could have made to the starting 11. I think up front, it seems to be, a, it's between Bursa and Rusin. Hamir's not really kind of looked like ready for championship level quite yet. Bars had kind of good spells, but has maybe been a bit inconsistent. Oshish, probably similar as well. Um, and then it's kind of younger players. Caden uh, Kelly came on the bench at, uh, at the weekend and under 21s player so for me I think it maybe perhaps again showed that lack of options and then um, as we said before it was it was quite a while until Bill made a change in that second half and even the substitutes that came on weren't able to impact the game. Uh, this podcast is coming to you live on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube, will be available after the fact on Shots TV and in all good podcast places as well. Phil, we have a question from Michael Bowers, friend of the Raw podcast, uh, centres around accountability. Question for you lads, whilst Bill Speakman deserve accountability, why are so many seemingly given the players a free pass? I know they're younger, but they shouldn't avoid accountability themselves. Phil, where do you stand on this issue? Because I feel like Michael Beale is obviously copping a lot of the criticism. He's hindered by the squad provided to him by Christian Speakman, who was in turn hindered by the strategy provided to him and the finances by Kirillary Dreyfus. I think responsibility is always collective, isn't it, at a football club? Yeah, I think so. Um I suspect some of the players, maybe some of the ones on social media, don't feel like they're getting a free pass. So yeah, yeah. maybe reading the various player ratings, but I, I suppose that's up for debate. Um, listen, I think that I, I obviously the players are ultimately accountable for their performances, but I just think my, my own personal view on that question, Michael, thanks for sending it in, is that I think that most of us feel, I suppose, is a reason why there's an inconsistency in the players' performances. I think that ultimately we've seen in some key positions i think the blend isn't quite right so for example in midfield i think fair enough you can scrutinize the players performances i've got no doubts of that and i'm sure there's certain scenarios where um players will feel they could have performed better whether it's you know in spells of game or across the 90 minutes but i think that center midfield is a perfect example where for me it, it just looks like someone have got too many of the same kind of player if you like and i think so that's something that we're sort of seeing happen cause them problems in games at times and I think that ultimately, 
the biggest reason, I suppose, that, that there's two factors to it why people aren't necessarily looking to the players first and foremost. One is because even though the results were a bit patchy, by and large, they were producing a fairly consistent level of performance under Tony Mowbray for the first half of this season. Now, that didn't always um, produce a consistent level of results, but in my opinion, that was primarily because of the issues in the final third. You know, if you're someone like me who thinks like looking at performance data can be really instructive, they were a good side. So that's why I think you're probably not looking to the players first because they were producing a good level for the first part of the season. And then if you also hold that view, which I do, is that the, the issue has been in key parts of the pitch, then that's not necessarily on the players, that's on that's on the recruitment. And you've alluded to it there as well, that it's incredibly important when we have that discussion that we don't focus purely on Christian Speedman and, for example, Stuart Harvey, because they are ultimately, as you say, are working to a budget and strategy. And that then dictates which players they then go out and identify who fit in with that, whether it's because of the age, whether it's because of the budget. So it's quite a long-winded response, really, but I completely agree that the players have to take some accountability. I just think for, for a lot of us, there's a reason why when we assess what's gone wrong in the last few weeks, it's not necessarily the players themselves. The one thing I would say is that I do think sometimes, and maybe this is natural because of their age and their inexperience, they look to me as a group like they find it really easy to get fired up for the big games. Mm. If you think back to Leeds and West Brom under Dodds, think back to Southampton under Tony Mowbray, they seem to really rise to the occasion when it's a big atmosphere or it's against a really strong team. Um, sometimes maybe rather than away Huddersfield, the way Huddersfield at home, you don't quite see that intensity. Is that something that they're just going to learn over their careers in terms of how to build that consistency? Going to be, yeah, really interesting to see that how it unfolds over the next year. It's not simple, is it, is my long answer to that question. No, it's really not. And just sticking with you quickly, Phil, one of the, the major talking points uh, after the game centred around the Trey Hume handshake. Snub wasn't a snub, wasn't a snub. You dubbed it handshake gate, which which was quite amusing. You know, the, the images have been shared far and wide. You can, you can go and see them if you want. But Phil, what was your view on it? What was Michael Beale's sort of reaction to that at his post-match press conference? Yeah, um, really, um, really difficult one, actually, for us to talk about, I think, from our perspective, because, yeah, it's really important that you deal with facts, particularly around an issue where it becomes quite sensitive, as it has, because of the criticism. All I can say is I hadn't actually seen it before the post-match press conference, so I didn't have a chance to ask it because I was unaware of it. Anyone who's... Um, worked in football media these days knows what it's like around the final 15-20 minutes of games you don't always see things on social media so you know I know he won't mind me speaking from my colleague at BBC Radio Newcastle Nick Barnes um, Netflix star and very good friend did see <laughs> did see the the reaction he asked Beale about it and I'm sure Nick won't mind me saying he felt that Beale seemed genuinely taken aback by the question was completely unaware of the storm seemed genuinely unaware of the event and was very um, disappointed and apologetic about it. Obviously, I, I can only leave other people to form their own opinions based on what they've seen on the footage. Um, I don't think it would be appropriate for me to say, you know, whether I whether I think it's true or not, because it, it's impossible to say. Mm-hmm. What I would say is that it becomes really, really difficult because the the football that we're seeing at the moment isn't great. The results aren't patchy and we've had too many of these these kind of issues, if you like, or too many of these sideshows, if you like, since Bill came in. And, and I'm sure he's aware of that, that it's a real ongoing problem for someone who was trying to sort of build something, I think. So, you know, I, I can't sit here and sort of cast 
a judgment on it really i think it's impossible for me to do it in that position other than to give you that perspective that bill did seem very genuinely contrite afterwards but it's far from ideal and i think it's another circumstance whereby you know it, it's just it it doesn't feel like that much fun at the moment so no. being associated with Sunderland, and i think that's a big issue because for a while it was really 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 fun and that was one of like my biggest sadnesses coming away from the game on saturday was actually feeling how that emotion had changed and i think that's something that you know the club and 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 the hierarchy need to reflect on a little bit because to an extent i think some of it or quite a lot of it is really self-inflicted mm. and that's the thing isn't it joe with the michael beale trey hume handshake thing is it it just seems regardless of, of your opinion on it it just seems like nothing is going right for him so some of it is, is, is self-inflicted some of it has been inflicted above him um, obviously the mood around the club completely changed in January we won't get into that but it just feels at the moment that nothing is is going right and this just felt to me like a, a symptom of that yeah yeah you're right I think it's just another thing that's just kind of pile on top of what's already kind of happening I mean if, if Sunderland won the game it's probably something that doesn't really get talked about is it but the fact that they they lost the game again and the kind of seems to be slipping down the table it just kind of adds to everything but I was just looking at the stats kind of before we came on Beal's now been in charge 11 games, 11 league games, won four, drawn two, lost five. And if you actually looked at the 11 league games before he took charge, it's an identical record with one, four, drawn two, lost five. So that was Mowbray. And then the game that Mike Dodds took charge as well, the three games that he took charge of. So pretty similar in terms of stats. And then under Beal, scored 13, conceded 13 in the league. Under Mowbray and Dodds, scored 12 conceded 12 so pretty similar stats but the mood does feel a lot different doesn't it compared to earlier in the season um, when Sunderland made a decent start to the season we're kind of still up around the playoffs but it just it kind of feels looking on that Sunderland aren't maybe creating as many chances or getting into as many good positions but the stats kind of suggest that they are scoring the same amount of goals obviously there's a few kind of results that maybe pad that up Sunderland have had a few 3-1 wins in the last few weeks but then they did um, under Mowbray and Dodds as well, but that just kind of shows the, the raw facts about it. But um, clearly, the mood has has taken a turn in recent weeks, and particularly after these last two defeats against uh, Huddersfield and Birmingham. Yeah, can I, if I, if I can just come quickly on on that because I think that is really interesting. Draw those stats to it, and I think that gets to the heart of on the football perspective. And we'll leave you with the stuff for a moment. I think that gets to the heart of the big issue here that in terms of Bill's time so far and and winning people over and what have you. As Joe alluded to, really good insight from speaking to the players. And I think Beale's comments himself would suggest that his big focus has been making, especially away from home, has been making the team less open, harder to beat. We've seen them out of possession. They're a little bit deeper. They're certainly a lot more narrower. That certainly seems to be his kind of key idea for improving this team. And at times, you do feel like they gift up fewer chances, but they're not conceding fewer goals. And I'm sure Beale would say set pieces, lapses in concentration, it's individual errors. But because Sunderland haven't been able to stop the goals, even if they seem to be creating few, um, giving up fewer chances, the way he's changed it has absolutely taken away from the final third. I think that's objectively fair to say in terms of it's not as exciting to watch. Um, it's not as fluid. It's not as open. And so at the moment, I think that's why he's really struggling to win people over in terms of purely the football is because it feels like he's, you know, his, his changes have taken away um, from some of the best things about this team over the last 18 months. Not that they were scoring loads of goals under Mowbray towards the end, I accept that. 
but it feels like we aren't actually getting tangible benefits at the other end of the pitch. I think that's the, for me, that's the major issue anyway from a football perspective. We've just lost you, James. You've uh, yeah, stopped me. You see, you can talking. Hear me now? Can you hear me yeah, now? There we go. I need to stop doing that. I need to stop drinking water during the podcast and muting my mic. I do it for the benefit of the listener. Anyway, my next overarching question, Phil. Sunderland Swansea at the Stadium of Lights on Saturday. There's a lot of people in the comment section watching this podcast live. And the question they're asking is sort of where does Sunderland go from here? Where do Michael why does Michael Beale go from here? Is it ever gonna work? What happens if Sunderland lose against Swansea? And then there's big, big games coming up after that against the likes of Norwich City, Leicester City, Southampton. It's obviously not prudent to, to speculate too much, but it just doesn't feel like this is going in the, the right direction at all, does it? It doesn't at the moment. And I think that was why these two games were so important when you look at the fixtures that are that are on the horizon. You mentioned there Swansea on Saturday. It feels like a, you know, put feel aside for a moment. Swansea feels like a must-win game. I think because yeah, be. I know they beat Hull recently, which was a fantastic result for them. But generally speaking, they're not having a great season. They're in a period of transition with the, with a new manager in place. It feels like a game that someone simply have to win because it feels like a huge stretch to say that someone will then go and beat Norwich, Leicester, and Southampton in the next three games. Mm. I would love to be proved wrong by that and sit looking very silly because they've done so but it, you know especially with the current away form it feels incredibly difficult to imagine them going and doing that so at that point if you don't get a good few results out of those four games I think we're not far off saying that the season's kind of all but gone really that then puts the club in a in a very very difficult um, position I would suggest having you know made the decision to change managers while you know something where ultimately I think it was six on the table even if you know, we're not trying to rewrite history and say there were no issues or the form was brilliant um, at that time. So, yeah, I think Swansea, I think Swansea is an absolutely huge game in the context of Sunderland's season. And I think if Sunderland were able to win that, I think it gives Bill and the team a chance of turning things around a bit in the games that follow. But and my hunch at this moment is we'll have a good idea of where we stand um, at the end of that run of four games. And to make matters harder for Michael Beale, Joe, if that was even possible, Dan Ballard will be out for two games. Lugo nine as well, walking mm. a disciplinary tightrope. He could pick up a suspension in the next couple of games. You know, <laughs> the bad news continues to come, really, doesn't it? Yeah, the Ballard one's going to be a big loss, isn't he? I mean, Sunderland were fortunate that 09 didn't pick up a booking as well. He'll have to be careful in the uh, the Swans again that he doesn't get another booking because then they'd both be out for the Norwich game and then they'd have to really rejig kind of the defence around as they did earlier in the season, the, the home game against Birmingham, wasn't it, where both 09 and, and Ballard were suspended and Trantis and Silk came in. Trantis is now obviously out on loan. Sunderland have brought in Leo Yelder, who has actually said his preferred position is centre-back, so maybe he could move in there. But then that would, again, mean probably Trihume has to go to left-back. Pembele might have to come in. So, yeah, 09 has to be careful in the Swans again that he doesn't get another booking or that would really put uh, Sunderland in a difficult position. But Silk will probably come in. Um, good opportunity for him. I thought he did he did well when he came into the side earlier in the season. But um, I think it's the home games, isn't it, where that frustration could kind of bubble over. We we saw in the game against Hull on that Friday night where um, there were chants against Michael Beale. So, yeah, really important game this weekend. And Phil, just quickly, obviously, um, Paul Freeman on Facebook talking about sort of lack of leadership on the field. That obviously with Ballard dropping out as well and potentially on nine in the 
in the next couple of games, if, if that booking does come, it, it's going to present a real sort of tricky moment for Sutton because I, I personally feel like a lot of this inconsistency could be solved by having a little bit of experience on the pitch in, in the sense of players like Gooch and players like Pritchard, players like Bath who are experienced, who almost provide that sort of coaching role on the field, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think so. I, um, you know, just seeing Paul, Paul's comment there, I, I agree that sort of the, the, the experience is an issue in the leadership. I, I certainly wouldn't put Luke O'Nine as a, as a problem in that category. I think he's really stepped up the season. I think he's been one of someone's most consistent players at central defender. Um, obviously, everyone will have their opinion on that, but that's certainly mine. I think he's been excellent. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that I sort of accept someone's point that age doesn't necessarily equal experience and vice versa. And we are at a stage where a lot of these players have played an awful lot of championship football and players like Dan Neil and Dan Ballard are now very consistent. I think we would have to say there's a, a real consistency in their individual performances from game to game. I think that the, the, the team has felt like it's in transition this, this season, hasn't it, really? And that you mentioned the players like Gooch, Bart, Pritchard, obviously Evans, who's been injured, who were, were huge parts of Sunderland's rise from League One. And they seem to find a really nice alchemy last season between that core of the side and these really exciting players that they've brought in. And this season, the balance hasn't quite felt there, mainly because a lot of the recruits from last summer, and obvious, for obvious reasons from January, as of yet, haven't really been able to impose themselves on the side. So it does feel like it's a side a little bit in, in limbo, a side that's still trying to find itself a little bit um, on the back of those sort of big big name departures. Ahmad is obviously leadership Massive. and leadership comes in various ways, doesn't it? It's not, not all just shouting and waving and pointing. It's it's taking the ball. It's it's stepping up in tight moments and games. You know, Ahmad was a leader, even if he wasn't, you know, what we might conventionally think of as leadership mm -hmm. skills. So... I think it just reflects a, a squad and a team that still feels a little bit in transition to me for having lost, you know, some big personalities and some big characters from where it was. And obviously, I suppose we should. It's really important as well that we we bring that into the conversation when we do discuss Bill. You know, we've talked about some of the tactical things, and obviously, as we said earlier on in the podcast, there are there are other reasons for it. Indeed, well, stick with us for the build up to the Swansea City game at the Stadium of Light. We'll have all of the news ahead of the game. Joe, you'll probably be coming with a pre-match pod at some point as well. Yes, we'll try and get a pre-match pod ahead of the game. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, just to run through some of the names here, Paul, Matty, Kevin, Michael, Steve, Peter, to name a few, Jason, Billy on various social media platforms for tuning in live and commenting. Perhaps we'll do some sort of Q&A at some point, but we'll leave that for a later date. We're on YouTube, Shots TV. Uh, all podcast platforms, and yeah, head over to the Sunday Network website for all the build-up. Thanks again for watching and listening. <laughs>